I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. I'm really excited today because this is something I should absolutely 100% know more about. This is my own bloody heritage and I know nothing. Um, Because I didn't know that during the Second World War, the 14th Army, which is the Forgotten Army, was supported by the remarkable Women's Auxiliary Service, Burma, or the WASBs as they're called. So to tell us all about it, we have Kieran Sahota with us, who is a social historian looking at imperial contributions and especially women and how we remember their contributions to um, events like the Second World War and she's been heavily involved in a project looking at all of this. Kieran, hello. Hello, I'm so excited to be here. It's amazing. Uh, (laughs) We put a call out because we wanted more um, women World War II stuff. So (laughs) excited because I really, to my shame, did not know that these women existed. Um, So I kind of know what the Women's Auxiliary Service is elsewhere in that. But tell us, what is the Women's Auxiliary Service for people who don't know, and specifically in Burma? Well, they were really, um, first of all, they were signed up for cyber duties. Mm. But because the Japanese were attacking, they had to be um, evacuated by sea to India. And they had to change roles where they were then um, were transferred and called the Women Auxiliary Corps India. So it started off as the WASBs um, and they had mobile and static canteens in camps and bases providing like food and drink. So they were very vital to this service. And like you said, they're often overlooked. The stories are not very told. So I'm excited to be like talking about them and raising awareness so everyone can do their research. How many of them were there? How big was the WASBs? Well, it was set up in 19, it was set up on 16th of January, 1942, um, and it wasn't very big. Um, by the time it was disbanded in 1946, um, there were approximately 250 women that served. Mm-hmm. So if you think about the way the men volunteered, especially the Indian Army, 2.5 million men volunteered, um, yeah. it wasn't that, it wasn't that big. Yeah, my granddad is one of those Indian men, well, Pakistani, but yeah, I've got his medal, actually. Um, mm. I still have not looked at what he did. Um, but how, these women that did this, where did they find them? Who were they? Well, I, you know, when I first researched this, I thought, um, they must be Indian because they're helping the Indian troops. And like you said, the 14th Army is often forgotten, but they weren't. They were, you know, British women that were living in, India at the time so it must have been in my research the families from first world war they were the daughters or the sisters and they called they when it was asked that this service be set up in 19 in January 1942 they signed up and so when we think about India and Indian women contribution it's not always those women we forget that there were women from Britain already living there with their families and because of the family history and contribution to war during the First World War, these women felt like it was their duty to sign up for Second World War and help in any way. Yeah, I mean, some of these families, had uh, they'd never even been to England, had they? Their family history was so yeah. rooted in being in India. 
that that's yeah. who you were. And it's it really, it's so interesting because especially for the South Asian community that I work with, anything that's got to do with Indian army or, you know, how the Indians contributed, we often think it must be Indian people with brown skin. And then when they see um, like British women in the photographs, they're like, miss, especially my young people, <laughs> miss, what were they doing in India at that time? How did they get there? And what were they doing? So it, it's educating them, but also saying that, you know, they were living there at the time, but we don't find that connection because it's not widely spoken about. The people that remained after the war, the First World War, that state, you know, the British that stayed in India. Mm. So those stories, and we don't have the time today, but, you yeah. know, often uh, my audience are surprised and they're saying, well, how, how did this all come about? And they take pictures of pictures to show the community if that makes yeah. sense <laughs> but it's I mean it's, it's great and there are you know we talk about the women auxiliary service here and, and the Wasbys but also when we talk about the women auxiliary cause as well the photos are Anglo Christians there which mm. we often think that India is full of Sikh and Hindus mm. um, and you know pre-partition and then after partition Pakistan was formed and um, the Muslims live in Pakistan, but actually it's so mixed at yeah. that time and still, and still today, and people don't realize that. So this is why the story of the Wasbys um, was so surprising because it was the first female unit actually set up and ordered to be set up. Mm. And I think we forgot that they got permission to be set up um, to, to help the men at war. So it wasn't all men just, you know, firing guns and everything. The women were doing the, the practical stuff, I think. Yeah. Um, so that's exactly So my next question is, why were they needed to help for the war efforts? Or what's the motivation for starting up the unit? So they've clearly said there is a need and mm. needed some of the practical background work um, and we're going to recruit women to do it. Yeah, and I think that people often forget that women were the powerhouses as well. So whereas the men were signed up, women were being called because there was a huge gap in like clerical duties and, you know, the men needed food and drink. So who better at that point? Um, not to play into stereotypes, but the women, and they were so organized as well. They, there are documents um, where women were breaking down the roles that they had to make sure that the troops were served. And that is, is that's vital because they were based at camps and bases. So it wasn't like, you know, they had one fix. They had to move then if they were being bombed mm. and the women worked in a group. So we don't hear so much about that now when we think about women serving in the armed forces. But back then the women worked together as a unit to make sure that they could undertake these roles and serve the troops. Are there any, um, so we talked about the fact that this is like, it's not the scale of colour of people's skin is not what you might have expected when we talk about an Indian women's unit, but are there um, people of uh, colour in the unit as well? From my research, I couldn't find this. Now, I only came about this because I was researching Indian women and war, mm. um, my project, and I was looking at the Women Auxiliary course. So I I think they were set up, but then I found this story. So looking in the archives and during COVID as well, it's so hard yeah. to get that actual document. I couldn't find women of colour, but there are so many pictures of women, um, British women up there. 
helping. So um, I think once COVID is over, I'll be able to look at those documents. Yeah, it's still um, a work in progress, isn't it? You yeah. haven't tracked everybody down yet. Um, so what, what was the routine? So they volunteered for war. Um, then what happened? So this is interesting because they were set up in um, Rangoon in 1942 in Burma. And it was then they were attacked by the Japanese. So they had to be evacuated. And in, I've got my little notes, so just um, bear with me. Um, yeah, the women, in 1914, the women were evacuated and they had to go to India by sea and they traveled um, to different places and then eventually they were located in Shimla and that became their base. Now in Ragoon was the Wasby HQ. And so as that was being bombed, some women stayed with the army, um, mm. but most of the women, I think there was approximately 60 women that remained with the army HQ just to make sure that they got help. But the rest of the women were evacuated. Um, and when they were flown to Shimla, that became their base again for the mm. troops. And it was everyday routine once they knew where they were they were set up and they would um, do the teas and coffees and provide support. And it was interesting because not much is known about individual women. Yeah. And so we don't really have that um, historical facts of, you know, this is what one person was doing at one time. Yet. You don't yeah. have it yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the important question. Yes, we don't have it yet. But it would be interesting to see where, you know, if we can dig up diaries and find, um, you know, the, the women that we see in the images to get their names and start recording their stories. Mm. So, I mean, this is, this is an important time for you because we are coming out of COVID now. So if there is anyone out there with anything on these, mm. please do get in touch because it's so important because of why you're doing this work so the your job is to discuss these with yeah. um ethnic communities in britain isn't it definitely um i realized during um the beginning of the centenary of the first world war that every, when david cameron said you know communities need to get involved learning about their histories well where do we go if you haven't got a history degree and you're not attached to a university or institution where the library wouldn't be no help, especially for South Asian history, because um, our documents were destroyed. The mass migration in 1947 of independence and partition that really like destroyed our documents. So we couldn't just go on ancestry.com or any other search engines to find our family history. And if we hadn't, if we haven't got war medals, the everyday soldier um, was forgotten, so let alone the women. Yeah. So it was really hard. So yeah, I, I made it my mission when I started finding letters. I said, let's do something. And I was shocked to see how men were talking about women. And that's what started this whole conversation off. Like, let's look at more about women's contribution, because they must be doing something, because the women in my family they're not silent they you know running the households I think the men think they run the households but it's the women running the households <laughs> telling the men what to do <laughs> and you know um they they helped me say you know we did contribute it's just not documented because a lot of the women 
who joined the Waspies could were you know able to read and write. Mm. Whereas there there are a group of women who built the road in Burma who weren't these women didn't read and write. So there is a comparison when we talk about these women. They are privileged in one sense. Yeah. So it's easy to get those photographs um, because it was the first female unit to be set up. So there, there will always be some sort of documents. We might not know the names of the women, but there will be some sort of documents which then helps create that bigger picture of women who was helping along um, with the men. And also, you know, um, sorry if I go on, just tell no, me. go for it. <laughs> but I was going to say that when they were in Shimla, the Waspies were disbanded and they were then called the Women Auxiliary Corps India. And when when they were you know with the troops it changed their roles changed and where they were first signed up with the wasbies to do um cipher duties they now had to do the food and drink but permission was then granted they could move with the troops forward as they were going into um into burma so and this was a very dangerous role and i think that when we hear about dangerous role we often think about Noor anaya khan um, who was awarded the um, George Cross, that she was the British spy and life expectancy was six weeks. But when the women moved with the men, they were actually in the line of fire. So the Japanese were always looking at who they could attack. So they, the women moving forward with the men, they put themselves in that position of attack, which is so dangerous, but they didn't think it was dangerous. They were just doing their duty and it, it just shows that women just never gave up. And I love that, like, courage. Yeah. That we will be moving forward and we will continue finish. They, were, they wanted to finish the job that they had signed up for. And that's um, courageous in itself. It is. And it's like, so it's very, so it is difficult to take something where the documents aren't there um, in the way that, I mean, you would love a list of the women and where they came from and mm -hmm. their application forms and all of that, but you don't have it. So you have to um, be much more canny about how you reconstruct their experience, but you do have letters, don't you? Yeah. So um, I was very lucky that when um, I was at National Army Museum, who are our supporting partners for the project, um, when this conversation came up, they were like, did you know that we've actually got a letter? And I was like, no, no, how did you come across <laughs> this? And um, what, what's happened is there is a book by Elizabeth Lockett um, who found a surviving diary of um, Maria Pilbrow. And so she's converted that into a book. So there is, but they, show, they said I can share this letter by um, Joyce Shaw. And she wrote a letter to a friend on the 23rd of November, 1934. And um, she said, quote, I'm in a forward position. We live in tents, which we make very comfortable. In Shimla, we have small bungalows with small bullet holes in the roof, unquote. <laughs> and, you know, to think about that was home for them. And they had to adjust because when they were evacuated, they didn't have the security of having a headquarters. So here they are just talking openly about small bullet holes in the roof. Can you imagine a house <laughs> with bullet holes in the roof? It would be fascinating, won't it, to, to carry on with the research and find out like what mm. they did in everyday life, like if they had jobs before they enlisted and what they did and what their life experience was before they were suddenly sort of advancing with an army. 
Mm. It, it, I think what, what's happened with women's history, um, you know, set in India, is that we haven't been able to do that storyboard. You know, it comes in bits and pieces and it often leaves the audiences questioning, well, why don't we know this? And there's so many gaps. Um, and even I think when we do have the documents, how accurate are they? And so we have to build this picture that we're never going to know the bigger story. And yeah. it's such a shame. It's honestly, it's a shame. But if anyone's got anything recorded or if they know anything, that would be great um, to include. Because like you said, nobody even knew about the 14th Army. Most of my audience only found out during last year's um vj day they were like why are we celebrating this so if they didn't know about the 14th army they definitely won't know about the wasbies yeah so okay. this this is the thing isn't it the work that you're doing it's very difficult to piece together but it's vitally important i think and um, because this conversation opens the narrative that women weren't just in factories and that they played a much more diverse role in the conflict and that even if you can't tell people everything it's really important for you to get out there and tell especially children um, and children in ethnic communities as well like in our communities it's important that they know that people from all over the world were involved you know, I'm so glad that you're saying all this because it's music to my ears. Because whenever we think of war, we just think of women as nurses or caring. And somebody in my community will always say, well, even the Princess Sophia Delete Singh helped be, an, you know, was a nurse and she went to visit injured soldiers um, at Brighton, you know, Brighton Hospital during First World War. And I'm like, there were so many other roles. Yeah. So, you know, nursing was important, don't get me wrong, but doing this project and having the funding to be able to now research and work with supporting partners, we, we are looking at women who were active um, during the Second World War. There's more documents on Second World War than First World War, which is a shame, because then we can't build that whole picture throughout the wars. But yet there were... They were not just nurses they weren't just in the caring roles and i never want these women to be thought of just as mothers and daughters and sisters mm. i want them to be known in their own right and that's why it's so important in my project is if i see a picture i want to put a name to it because men have that same recognition and i'm not man bashing here and i think men do incredibly an incredible job um yeah you know, for the war efforts and because we're here now to tell that story. But I also think that women have been so discredited, we don't know their names and we need to start building that. But, you know, I found pictures of, you know, women in Britain in just factories, but we know that there was so much more. If you look at during First World War, Bletchley Park, the women there coding, and you don't think about women in coding at that time. We fast forward, um, into second world war where we have got documents that the wasbies were doing crucial roles what well, i'm really keen so how did you find them because this all came about because you found a set of photos is that right yeah so it always helps being nosy and curious um <laughs> i would say more curious my sister says nosy but i was um i think after the centenary there was a lot of questions from my own community, like, Kieran, can you help us? Where do we go about women's stories? So as I was researching the Women Auxiliary Cause India, 
And again, there, there's not much information on there that's digitalized. So again, we're waiting for COVID um, to pass so we can get to those documents. Um, I came across the story of the Wasbies and that's what sought my interest. I was like, well, I thought it was just the Women Auxiliary Corps, but actually there were so many more, like the ATS, they were helping as well. Um, we have the Queen that helped in the war efforts, and a lot of people don't know that story as well, my audiences. Um, and so there were different branches. The women of the West Indies were helping in the ATS as well. So women from the Commonwealth were helping. We just don't have that full picture, or there's not one book that we can go to if that makes sense and which is upsetting in a way but i came across it by accident and i was like well this needs to be shared how do i share it during covid and that's when you answered the call and said well here you go here's a platform and let's, <laughs> let's talk about these women but i think we get uncomfortable talking about women as well and i think that's the main problem why we don't know these stories because we have thought that they were insignificant, if that makes sense. And the men's stories are more powerful. Mm. And that's why I think there's been such an overlook um, of these stories. But now I think just the last few years, there's been a real push. And I'm so glad that my work um, looking at war and these stories through a female perspective has, has paid off. It's slightly hard, isn't it? Because there is a culture thing. So I was talking to my uncle about um, the fact that you wouldn't know, listening to um, people talk about the First World War, that many more, if you were a layman, you wouldn't know that many more Indians slash Pakistanis slash Bengalis died than Australians because of the talking about it. And he said, it just, he said, Australia, um, their culture is to talk about it and to honour them very loudly um, and to mention it at every opportunity. He said, we don't do that. He said that, that to us, that is not how you behave. And it wasn't a criticism of Australia and how they remember the war, but it, he said it explains the difference. You know, I'm so glad that you picked up on that point. To even talk about war, we have to then remember partition and that affected so many of our families, um, whether you were on the border or not in the border. So my family weren't on the border, but they were still affected. Women were getting raped. My grandfather tried to hide some of the Muslim, we're Sikh family. Um, he was trying to hide some of the um, Muslim women in his house so they don't get raped because he knew what was going to come. So we, that generation don't talk. Our culture does not talk about the war because then we have to mention partition and it wasn't great. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. 
So yeah. whereas, they, just, you know, they don't want to talk about any of it, even yeah. if there's, there's no sort of other people might say and other cultures might say, yes, it's very sad, mm. but we talk about it because we have to learn from the past. But, but that doesn't, that's not what it is. It's like, you, know, you just don't talk about it. I don't care about the educational value. Yeah. It's not something you talk about. Also because again, you know, women were affected, you know, we went from helping to war efforts during First and Second World War, and then partition came, women were being raped. I mean, yes, they were being raped in Second World War, um, but we don't talk about that. And I think it's just been this dark cloud over our history. Mm. And so we can't always talk about the men were heroes, because from the letters that I found, men left their families in India when they, you know, were based in France. And they wrote that we're not going to return. And mm. that's a whole different episode by itself. I can go into the letters and there's so much more, but they didn't return. So you've got women stranded in India and raising, they've had children, raising the children, then struggling with the farm because the Bengal famine came in 1943 as well. And that disastrous result. So you're right in saying when your uncle said that we don't talk about it, it's because I feel, I think we feel shame as well because we know what happened. Yeah. And we, we you know the British are very patriotic and they they celebrate that. But even Independence Day, you'll find not a lot of people celebrate that because of the tragedy what happened. So yeah. I mean it's hard to it's hard to even celebrate something positive like independence when I mean was it the obviously the estimates are wildly all over the place but i mean be talking about millions of people affected directly by violence um in partition yeah the, the number you know the 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 sad part is we don't even have an actual number we can't say like 2.5 yeah. million let alone people. the names either yeah because it, yeah. so many people weren't even talking about it and it's only recently where we're trying to get this oral history because that age is dying mm. and we're trying to preserve that history. We can't talk about it. And the British don't understand. I think sometimes when you're talking to a British audience, I've been out doing community talks up and down the country before COVID. And a lot of the questions were, well, why don't you, why didn't you talk about it at the time? Why didn't you get these men and women and store their stories? But it's so sensitive. So Kieran, We've talked about the Wasbies. Um, we also want to talk a little bit about the First World War, don't we? Because you've been uncovering some amazing letters from First World War combatants mm. from India. You've picked a, uh, picked a few for us today that you're going to talk us through. That um, they, You said they speak to us today. They've got something relevant to say today to us. So what's the first one? Yeah, this is so interesting because... Um, where the Wasbies have been making an impact in the Second World War, in the First World War, women are there, but they're t spoken about. So the first letter is from a sub-assistant surgeon um, who's to a who wrote to a friend in Poshwa, and it was in early 1915. And he said, if, if a woman is walking alone and does not wish to speak to anyone, no matter whether she is, no matter whether she's be, to be respected Oh, let me read that again. If a woman is walking alone and does not wish to speak to anyone, no matter whether she's, she be respectful or not, it is a breach of good manners to talk to her first. You must wait, in capitals, until you are invited to speak. This is very different from India, where a lady cannot venture unescorted into any street. And I thought that was very relevant into what was happening today, where hmm. even 100 years on from these letters, 
that women are pinpointed wishy walking alone and men are now coming to our space whereas when this surgeon was writing in France to his uh, sorry in England to his friend back in India it, even India is not safe and I think we've seen that in the recent news as well so that really talks out to all our audiences it doesn't matter about your race or ethnicity it just talks about women in general are not feeling safe it's interesting isn't it as well that he's talking about the cultural differences he finds mm. uh going from asia to europe as well yeah. and you know we think about this time in england where women were 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 walking unescorted whereas it's so different even in india the cities are different in india today but even in the villages you have to be escorted because you know rape crisis as we know the rape um, cases as we know are on the increase in india and mm. situations like that so it, it it just is that polar opposite that 100 years on nothing has changed in india but things seem to have gone backwards here where we're now being asked to wear different clothing if we're going on a night out or even in the daylight actually is it because of what she was wearing she was attacked or who was in her company or was it males in her company and, and stuff like that so I just thought that, was, that really spoke out to me when I was going to come to you guys and really do this podcast that this history has a way of speaking to us from years ago. Yeah I also as well and imagine your reaction if someone tells you you shouldn't wear your heels out. Alex if they tell me about my short skirt and my heels oh we I'm going to I think I did meet somebody once who told me um, I think you should dress differently and um, we're no longer together and you can, put that in your, you can put that in your podcast as well because you know 100 years on if, you know I, I we live in a world where we can wear what we want as long as we are doing our job correctly or we're not hassling anyone it seems to be men approaching in our spaces and this is what's so great about the letters it's men writing about women and women don't seem to have a voice but it's very interesting how women are being described so um i can the second letter that i've chose so which mm. fits nicely into here is a, a huge contrast between the european standards of living and the living in india so Faraz Khan, who is a Punjabi Muslim, has wrote to his friend in Punjab, and Faraz was in France, and this letter was dated March 1916, and he said, if you have sent Nadir Khan to school, please let me know. If you have not done so already, you must certainly do so. I have seen in this country that no person is uneducated, even the women are educated, all the inmates of a house are educated, and when they see one of our men going with a letter in his hand to have it read, they are very surprised. What is a man without education? He is nothing. The women even drive a plow. You must certainly send Nadir Khan to school. And I think that's a great, you know, a lot of these letters, men were saying that the women in France and in, and in England were educated. They don't need somebody to read their letters. And we all know that Indian men at that time, um, the illiteracy rate was quite high. So they were from villages and they were like normal farmers um, who, who couldn't read and write. So they had to get their letters um, read. And we all don't know what was said properly because letters were censored at that time. But there's a huge contrast because even now uh, in most European countries and internationally, children have to pay for their education. Mm-hmm. And we're, we live in a society today where we don't have to pay, in, especially in the UK, we don't pay for education up until 16. Um, and after that, that's a choice. 
And so we have these privileges even now um, that I don't think that we really, really appreciate because illiteracy in the communities I work with are quite high. Even today, there's mums out there who can't read and write. And so the children are translating. And we see that also with the migration, you know, people coming over from um, Poland and Syria and settling here, the refugees, they are, the young kids are speaking for their parents. So I think there's always been a shame attached to education. I think and, as well, it's like we went to Uganda in 2019 and you have to pay otherwise. So you get to a certain age and you, you can't do like the equivalent of GCSEs or anything unless your family can pay for it. And these mm. can't, but we actually ended up sponsoring a little boy to go to school, a little boy with um, mobility issues. Uh, he's not disabled, it's psychological, but he won't walk. He drags himself everywhere on his knees and he's only allowed to go to school on the premise mm. that if you need to go to the toilet and things like that, his sister will take him. Um, but we, we pay for him to go to school now. And it's just like, it's insane. The fact that we take for granted so much and bitch yeah. and moan so much about this basic education that gets us to yeah. sort of GCSE level before your options open up. I think, do you not have to stay till like 18 now, but you have to be doing something in the form of education. It's not necessarily like we did because we're old, like where you had to stay on, it was a choice to do A-levels. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's crazy that it's, again, it's like the past still relevant today. Hmm. I think that just shows because, you know, when you see teenagers and I work with teenagers as well, and they always say, what does history have to do with us, especially, you know, South Asian history? Um, but, you, you know, 100 years ago, I said that they had to pay for education and men were desperate for their kids to have a privilege. And so now that you've got this privilege and you see them staring out of classroom windows and saying, well, you know, we're going to, we don't want, we don't need this education. And I, I think we take for granted. I think now you have to stay in, but you don't even have to learn another language. So if you think about, you know, the men who were stationed in France, they had to learn, you know, a bit of French and learn a bit of English. And then they had their mother tongues as well. So we don't appreciate the sacrifices sometimes a parent or a guardian makes for us to allowed to be educated um, it doesn't always have to be to degree level but just have that standard and I think it's one of the beautiful things in this country is that we have free education mm. absolutely or free university in Poland's case so everything in Poland is free all education is free I'm in Norway and well, I think this is not discussed enough the privileges of each you know we we talk about the EU and Brexit and, and you know currently but we don't talk about what it is that we have on our doorstep. And, you know, the same can be, you know, I, when I was looking at back to this and then I was going to, I knew I was going to do this podcast. It's a bit like the NHS. We just, we take it for granted sometimes, but we're very lucky. Whereas men in India and still in India, the current situation, they have to pay for medication, the vaccination for the COVID situation. And here we have it for free. So you know, education and health, we has always been provided for free, you know, since I've known it. I know the NHS was set up um, to, to help the crisis, not just COVID crisis, but for the war efforts as well. But we never think about these things when we're reading letters. So it's been very interesting researching and connecting. Oh, we had this privilege and we've got this privilege. And some countries are, are fighting just for clean water. Talk us through the third letter. So the third letter is... Um, we, we rarely ever, we talk about death in war, but I don't think we've ever seen it written down. So there was a letter from um, a soldier to his wife 
um, talking about sacrifices, I think, you know, 1.5 million men from the First World War sacrificed, uh, volunteered for the, from the India, from India, and then 2.5 million men uh, volunteered for Second World War. So um, it's somebody talking about sacrificing his life and talking about his family. So he's right. I tell you, Basant Kaur, look after the children and have them well schooled, fed and clothed. There is no need to think of the cost. You can spend as much as you like on them, but I have no hope of seeing them again, nor do I wish to see them, for I have found a good opportunity of sacrificing my life, and I hope to repay that debt with loyalty. And this just made me really sad. Is it he talking me... about the pension? He's talking about if he's killed, she's taken yeah. care of. Mm -hmm. Wow. It also made me sad because they see the death. And I think that anybody, um, you know, like I, I, I cared for somebody who had cancer. Mm. And you know, when you can see death coming, but you're as a carer and you're not um, the person, I can't imagine what the person can, oh, sorry. Sorry, just so sorry. I always use this letter because it's so moving. I just, it's the fact that not, we hear, we, here on the British side about some economic means of signing up, but to see it so it is upsetting, it's okay. Um, it's so <laughs> frankly written down that if I'm happy to die over here because I'll be taking care of my babies. Mm. And if you can imagine, by the time he's wrote that, that's his thought, and then he's wrote that in France in um, January 1916, that letter will then take a couple of weeks to get over to his wife. If she cannot read that letter, she'll have to find somebody else. And then to hear devastating news like that from somebody else, he's saying, don't worry, you'll be looked after. It's the fact that the person that you love will no longer be here to see the next generation grow up. And as parents, you know, we always we always think, what will they be like in 20 years time? Yeah. And at that time, women, it's there's not a lot of research of how did women cope with those news? Um, you know, when letters like this, and these are far, you know, very few of these letters I come across, but this always keeps me, this always makes me cry because he's sacrificing his life for them to have a better life. Yeah, it's like he's saying, it's okay that I'm not coming home. I've made my peace with it because like he says, you can buy them whatever you mm. want. And I wish that um, it told me the ages of the children because if somebody is six months old, they will never understand this yeah and and it, as teenagers as well if you come across something like this you're like my dad's gonna die we always think our parents have no age and they'll yeah. be here forever to guide us so it really is that uncertainty of what but then what did happen did he die did he come back do you know if he died or not we can't find anything and this is what's so interesting I read these letters but there's nothing to prove that they received it on the other end and replied. So, and because they were censored, we, and there was mass mail coming back and forth, back and forth, we, we just never know. So I read these stories as, and these letters as this is what was said, but then I can never chase it up because there's just, you know, then partition came um, in India and second, or this is from first world war, then Second World War came, partition came, and then Jallianwala Bagh in 1919 in Amritsar. So it's, it's just too much chaos to try and pin people down. Yeah, and this is why I find him living on, but that doesn't necessarily mean he didn't. 
is what you're saying. Yeah, because the letters I read are from everyday men. So unless, you know, we say, I say this as a matter of fact, as if, you know, the listeners all know about history, but unless you were granted like a Victoria Cross or, um, you know, a George Cross. Or you were an officer. Yeah, it's easier to find those letters in the research and the archives. But if you're an everyday person from the letters that I've read, um, it's so hard to track those. And it's just one of those open-ended research things that I hope, you know, more money gets ploughed into so we can actually track it. But knowing that you're going to die and making plans, especially as a parent, I think that's the hardest thing ever, especially if you're not in that country neither. So it's not like today we can put on, you know, internet and see what's going on in um, other countries or use FaceTime. We can't do any of those things. We just imagine that they are okay. Um, and, and, and that they've got the strength to deal with the situation if you did die. So it's just sad and it, sorry I went off. <laughs> no, send, send me what you do know and I'll see if I, mm. if the way I do it can help. Um, yeah. a, a fresh pair of eyes. Um, maybe we'll try and get it out on Twitter as well. Even try and get my uncle involved at Al Jazeera English. But then this letter, but this letter also, there's so many like, different levels as well you know women are seen as caregivers so now it's the women's responsibility to raise them kids and then there's a lot of pressure as well on women especially to raise their kids the right way um you know especially in these communities you have to set them to a standard and if you don't then you're seen as a failure so you know this letter is there's so many levels to it did you raise them correctly and you know what did they go on to do and how and did they join the war efforts later or what did they become so it just it just is one of them things about women being mothers and caregivers and trying to take that responsibility to to the next generation so and that fit that fits fittingly with the last letter I'm going to read out yep. um and this is from Mir Jafar, who's a Punjabi Muslim, and it's to his niece in Amritsar in Punjab. He was stationed in France and the letter is dated 16th of May, 1916. And in the letter, he said, I send you the picture of a girl equipped for battle. Certainly nowadays, honorable young girls are making themselves fit for battle. And inside the letter, he he enclosed a postcard depicting a French girl in military uniform with full acrimons. And this was great because at the time of, I was doing this research in 2018, um, the army had announced in 2018, all roles in the British army will be open to women. Mm. So it's as if he knew hundred years ago that women will be in the war efforts and they were playing a pivotal role. And until second, like Second World War, where we've got more evidence of like North and I Khan, the Wazbees, the Women Auxiliary Corps, the Women Auxiliary Air Force, you know, there was no mention of women in the army. We'd heard about women, but not like this. So I think France was really leading the way of a woman dressed up in a uniform. Um, And this has been circulated um, in other letters as well that men had uh, going back to India. I think what, do you know what this says to me about Indian men serving in the army is I think a naive person would think well they must have found that shocking like I mean it's it's probably a publicity photo but it's still Mm. someone has novelty dressed up a girl in a uniform um, Mm. for people to look at and it's that 
Indians and now Pakistanis, Bengalis, those men, they're looking at it and they're not disgusted at the idea of it. It's curious. They're just curious. They're like, oh my God, this girl's in a uniform. They don't mind seeing a woman in a uniform. Yeah. A woman fight one day. It's as opposed mm. to heinous, get back in the kitchen and know your place. Mm. But it really opens up that whole conversation about women's role in you know the army and and just if armed forces today as well because we don't really hear from them and whenever we have you know remembrance or whenever we have um an anniversary of certain dates regarding these histories we never think of the women we always you know say let's find the men and let them tell their stories so it was just poignant for us in what 2018 reading all these letters and here we are 100 years to the date um women are fighting and these women are also you know who are in the army air force and navy today they are moms and they are sisters and they are human and i think we forget that because we think oh my god with the armed forces they how are these women getting involved and how can you leave your children behind or how can you leave your partner behind but they see it as, as a job and they should be really proud of the things that they're doing Kieran, thanks so much for coming on to talk to us about Indian experiences of both wars and talk about men and women, especially. Mm. Tell us about your research. Thank you so much. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you could be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.